Uh, if you have your Bibles with you, uh, welcome you to grab them, uh, flip them open to Luke chapter 10. We are going to be looking at verses 25 to 37 uh, this morning. Um, it was about two years ago that uh, I got a text from a friend saying, um, have you heard the news? And uh, he started to tell me the story about uh, somebody we knew named Chase, who, uh, father of three, husband, who was driving up to Rebel Stoke to pick up some machinery. Uh, and as he was on the road, uh, a trucker lost control and had crossed the median uh, and crashed into him, killing him instantly. Um, it, it was a, a shock, uh, something that you don't really expect. Um, it, it's a tragedy. You, you know that everybody is going to die, but you, you don't always expect that it's going to happen then. But everybody will die. And what happens afterwards? And for somebody like Chase, the, the question is, you know, is there something that he can look forward to or that, that we can look forward to for him? Is there something after this life? Is there a heaven? Is, is there something good that he can go to? How, how does he gain it if there is? What does he have to do? What does he have to believe to gain eternal life? Maybe you're asking these questions. It's, it's why you're here. It's why you're listening in. Uh, it's something that you've been wrestling with. Or maybe you, you already have the answer. You, you think you know how to gain eternal life. Or maybe eternal life, uh, those kind of questions bug you. Uh, you don't necessarily love them because it, it's, it's so hard to be able to, to, to wrestle down an answer. But it's the question that we find in our text this morning. Luke 10, 25 to 37, the, the center of the text is really, well, what do I have to do? What must I do to gain eternal life? And before we jump into our passage, before we read it, um, if you're looking at your Bible, you might see it and say, oh, above verse 25, there's this nice subtitle that says, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And you might go, I, I kind of already know where this sermon is going. I kind of already know where, where we're going to end off. We're going to look at these religious people and their religion didn't actually uh, help them serve or love. So don't be like those religious people, but be like this, this good Samaritan who sees this person on the side of the, of the road and goes in and serves them, helps them, has compassion on them. And that's kind of the, the, the gist of, uh, of the sermon. Well, yes, the, the passage is about the Good Samaritan. That's a, a clear part of it. But it all comes from the central question. What do we have to do to in, uh, inherit eternal life? So read the passage with me uh, and let's jump in. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is it that is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him, who beat him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place where he saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal, and brought him to the inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? 
He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Pray with me as we start. Father, thank you for this passage. And thank you for the way that your, your word reveals um, what you're like, uh, reveals uh, what's required of us. God, it, it points us to what eternal life is like and, and how, we can, how we can gain it. God, what we, can, what we can do and what we can't do. And so I pray this morning as we, we study this passage, as we read it, as we apply it to our lives, uh, God, that we would be uh, humbled. We would see how big the law is, how, how much is required of us, and we would see what you've done for us. And we would come to trust you and love you, uh, and that it would change our hearts, it would change our, our lives, uh, the way we care for and love others. Uh, so God, open your word this morning. Would your spirit speak powerfully? Uh, would, uh, would he apply this passage to our hearts? And would we go away changed and, and wanting to, to respond to the grace that we've received? We pray this in your name, Lord. Amen. So verse 25, behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, as a lawyer, his job would have been somebody who, who knew this answer, actually. He, he, he was somebody who would have memorized scripture. The Old Testament scriptures was something that he would have known front and back, uh, up and down. He, he knew this. He was a professional, a teacher himself, somebody who helped people understand what it meant to, to fulfill the law, to understand the law. He was somebody who believed themselves to be the, the true uh, representative of God. So why does he ask Jesus this question? I mean, we've seen in uh, the Gospels kind of time and time again where uh, these, these teachers or scribes, these Pharisees, try to ask Jesus questions to trip him up, to, to make him look silly in front of people. So why come to Jesus with this question? It's such an easy answer. Well, Jesus is this up-and-coming teacher, He's somebody with a growing following. Uh, people are coming far and wide to, to hear him speak and to sit under his teaching. And maybe this lawyer, uh, his followers are going to Jesus and, and he wants to try to get them back, prove how, how smart he is with his questions. Maybe it's because Jesus has just taught on eternal life. Right, the, the 72, we preached on this last week, the 72 had just come back and uh, they were so filled with joy over what God was, was doing through them that they were um, able to heal people, cast out demons. And, and Jesus says, be most filled with joy that you, your names are written in heaven, that you have eternal life. Maybe that's where the question comes from. What we know from our passage is we see a couple of questions that the lawyer asks and we, and we see a couple of words that Luke uses that, that really key in what he's trying to do. Verse 25, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And in verse 29, but he desiring to justify himself. He wants to be able to gain righteousness. He wants to be able to gain forgiveness. He wants to be able to be innocent before God, make himself right in God's eyes. And this is true than just the lawyer. This is true of many of us, if not all of us. The first thing that we see and, and that we'll see in these next couple of verses is we all want to justify ourselves. That word justified uh, means to be declared righteous or, or right or innocent in this case. Right? The only way to, to stand before God and not deserve judgment is to be innocent of everything. The question 
And the desire is the basis for this passage. It's the center of the lawyer's heart, and I think it's at the center of many of ours. What do we have to do to be right? And maybe you disagree, maybe you, you push back and say, I, 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 don't, I don't think so. But I, I stumbled onto a website this week as I was trying to find a good illustration for this. And I, I, I stumbled upon this website that had uh, 5,424 pages of stories. And every single one of these stories was people sharing their experience, either at work or with their friends or family, about, about a time where they, they had been having a conversation with somebody and that person was just, they were in the wrong. But they weren't able to, to be right in the moment and so they had come anonymously to this website to share with the internet all the ways that that other person was wrong and they were right. 5,424 pages of stories of people trying to prove anonymously that they were right. Do you see this? Do we see this in our own lives? where we look for ways to prove ourselves in our relationships, that we're right. Maybe, maybe you've been trying to, uh, to make yourself, maybe we have been trying to make ourselves look better than we really are. You know, in front of our family, in front of that, the spouse, the kids, that, that guy or that girl that you really like. Maybe at work or in your neighborhood. You're trying to do things so people think that you're better than you really are. You don't want them to see who you really are. Well, Jesus takes this question from the lawyer and, and turns it around. How do you think you can earn salvation? Verse 26, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And the, the lawyer really easily puts together uh, Deuteronomy 6, 5 and Leviticus 19, 18. Uh, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, uh, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. These two laws go hand in hand. It, it's, it's taking the 613 laws uh, throughout the, the Old Testament and putting them in two really easy to remember laws. It's simple, really, right? It, it, it feels like at this point you'd expect Jesus to push back a bit. Just, just a bit. But no, verse 28. And he said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. All you have to do is love God with every bit of your mind, your strength, your soul, everything you are. And then love your neighbor as yourself. If you can fulfill those two things, you have eternal life. Case closed, right? The, the, the chapter should just kind of end right there, right? Like there's, there should be no parable. There's no parable of the Good Samaritan. It's just the, the story that ended really quickly because the answer was simple. Theoretically, it's a good answer. Theoretically, it's actually the correct answer. If you can do this perfectly, that's how you can earn eternal life. But practically, practically, really? Fulfill the whole law perfectly? Every one? It's one thing uh, to know, theoretically, if you want to be the fastest person on the planet to run the 100-meter sprint, you have to run 100 meters in 9.57 seconds. Usain Bolt's uh, world record time is 9.58 you can go to the track and you can see 100 meters. You, you can walk it, you can see it, you can visualize it. You can take a stopwatch and you can time out 9.57 seconds and understand how, how long that is. Theoretically, it's really easy to grasp. Practically, none of us are doing it. 
practically, it's impossible for most people to run that fast. Theoretically, we, we all want to justify ourselves. But practically, the weight of the law is something that no one can bear. Sin makes it impossible for us. As one commentator said, what Jesus is doing here is he's, he's trying to lay down an impossible challenge designed to drive sinners to a savior. He's trying to build up the law and, and show the lawyer how big and weighty it is so that he sees his need for a savior. And that's the second thing we really see in this passage. We, we see, yes, we want to justify ourselves, but we also see that the law reveals our hopelessness. When we really look at, at the full weight of those 613 laws, when we really look at the way, uh, what it means to love God fully and love our neighbor as ourselves, we realize it's not something that we can carry. It's not a burden that we, we can. The lawyer doesn't understand this yet. He believes that he has loved God perfectly, but now, and this is the thing that we see in that second question, how can I make loving my neighbor manageable? Like, I got, I got loving God, but, but who's, who's my neighbor? Like, who's, who's in and who's out? Because if, if you can help me with that, Jesus, then I think I can actually fulfill the law that way too. So Jesus teaches him the reality of his hopelessness with this parable. That's where it comes from. So look, verse 30. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Almost everyone who lived in, in Jericho would have been part of this religious class, the Levites. Uh, they would have been a people who, that was the city that they were, were given as an inheritance. And, and their job was actually to go to the temple. And if they were a priest, they would serve before God. If they were a Levite, they would go and they would help people worship, uh, understand the law of, of God. And so this path they would have taken from Jerusalem to Jericho and back was their commute. Not a big de deal. The, the, the problem comes when the path that they had to take was called the bloody way. You don't take that if it's on your GPS, I don't think. It was narrow, it was windy, it was only a few miles, but it was notorious for thieves. It was, it was common knowledge that it was best to travel in packs to try and keep thieves away. You did not go alone. But for some reason, this man has traveled. He's gone on this journey, and he's jumped, he's beaten, he's stripped, he's left for dead. He's on this path half dead, and three people come by and see him. Three people have the opportunity to help him out. And we'll enter the, the plausible candidates. We see these two religious people. And obviously Jesus is trying to set up the story with these two religious people, saying, look, these people say they love God, so they should love their neighbors. So, verse 31 now, by chance, a priest was going down the road. He would have been coming home from Jerusalem, so he would have been going down to Jericho, uh, and, and which would have meant that he had just finished serving in the temple. He could have been even offering uh, sacrifices, offerings. He could have been before God serving, 
which would have meant that he should be coming off kind of that, that, that high, right? You know, you come home uh, from a concert and you're just kind of like, yeah, that was, that was so good. Well, think of that, but like a religious concert, you know, when we could go to those things. Um, and, and you're coming home and you're just like, you're, you're so like enamored with the music and it's just such a great feeling. And you're coming home and you see this person on the side of the road. You'd expect that what you've just experienced, this, this worshiping God and glorifying God would lead you to love this person on the side of the road. Jesus is trying to point out that someone who believed that they loved God should love others too. Yet the text says when he saw him, he passed by on the other side of the road. So, Likewise, a Levite comes by. And now, although the Levites aren't the same as priests, like I said, they, they still did serve the people. They helped them understand how to worship and honor and glorify God. He too was coming from Jerusalem. It means that he should be up next to love his neighbor. Well, the text makes it seem like, uh, unlike uh, the, the Levite, the priest kind of comes up to him. When he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. He comes to the place where this man is lying, uh, half dead, beaten, stripped, naked, uh, alone. He looks at him and then he goes on his way, which is really unbelievable. Right? When we think of it, who, who wouldn't stop? If you saw somebody who was in pain, who was, who was dying, wouldn't, wouldn't you stop? Especially these people who have this image of being lovers of God. People who are, um, you know, at the top that we look to to show us what it means to love God. They should be the ones who do this. Now, for argument's sake, there's a few understandable reasons why these two men might not want to stop. For, for our day and age, we might think, well, who would want to be in that kind of position? Like, what would people think if they saw you standing over a, a naked, uh, beaten up, bloodied man? What if somebody came by? What would they think? And if he, if he did die, what do you do with the body? Like, are you supposed to drag that thing all the way back to Jericho? But then the, the, the real one that I would think of is, are the thieves actually gone? Are the people who came and beat him and stripped him, are, are they gone? Or if I stop to help this guy, am I next? It's interesting, too, uh, that the way Jesus tells a story is you're supposed to go in, in a group of people, but everybody so far has been on the, their own. They've all been alone. So they could think something like, well, you, you kind of deserved it. Like, you shouldn't be out here by yourself. But they're in the same position. They just haven't gotten beaten and robbed yet. For a Jewish audience, though, it would have been a bit different. They would have seen this story and they would have seen this man lying on the side of the road and they would have said, uh, actually, it's better that the, the Levite and the priest don't stop because if they stop and try to help the guy and he dies, they're unclean. They can't go back with their families and, and they can't actually go and serve in the temple. They're unclean. They're, they're, they're not able to do the things that they're meant to do. And so if they stop to help this one guy and he dies, well, they've actually hurt the ability to help others, to point others to God. They, 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 they can't be with those people who need them so much. They can't mediate the presence of God and the offerings that they needed. That they, he, they should go. It's, it's better that many are served than just, than just one. For the greater good, they, they, they should have passed by. They should have remained clean innocent of, of having this dead man on their hands, unstained before God. 
Jesus doesn't actually give the reason, though, in this passage. It's pretty clear. He doesn't tell us why they didn't stop. The point is they had the opportunity to show compassion, and they didn't do it. This is supposed to sting, I think, even for us today. How often are we the people who know the right thing to do, but we don't do it? How often do we turn a blind eye to those who are in need? Or how often do we serve those that we don't deem worthy? They did this to themselves. It imposes on me, my time, on my money, on my life. I'll, I'll be honest with you, uh, this, this one is, uh, hits close to home because uh, sometimes we get phone calls here at the church from people who are looking for help. And we have a, a benevolent fund that we want to help people in need. And it's really hard to want to serve people when you know you've been fleeced in the past, where people phone up and they, you know, they, they, they give you a good sob story and you know they're lying to you, right? Like they, don't, they don't really need it. Or, or when, you, when you get the phone call from somebody and they're asking for help, but, but you know what they've done with their money. Or you know what they've done. They, they put themselves in this place. They don't, they don't deserve our help. Our, our resources should go somewhere else. We, we should be better with that. But that's not the way I, I want to be treated. That's not the way I want to be served I don't want to have somebody look into my suffering even when it's self-imposed and have the aha moment. I, I just, I really need help. Back to the parable, there's a little bit of a, of a kicker in here. So the, 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 the lawyer's question is, who is my neighbor? Israelites would have considered anybody who was an Israelite their neighbor. That was kind of the in and, and out. If you are an Israelite, you're my neighbor. If you're not an Israelite, I, you're not my neighbor. So I, I have to help these people. I don't have to help these people. It's from the story and the way Jesus tells it, it's pretty clear that the, the man lying on the side of the road is an Israelite. Probably would have been part of the, the religious group, given that he's going from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And yet, even the people who are in, even the people who you know, deserved the compassion, they don't extend it to him. Jesus is really pointing out that we don't actually even often want to help the people that we consider our neighbor. Do we love those who need compassion as we love ourselves? Do you see the weight of the law building up here? But do you feel how heavy Jesus is trying to make this? Like it's not supposed to be simple. It's not supposed to be manageable. It's supposed to be weighty. And so a Samaritan enters the story. So it says, verse 33, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Now this is where uh, things would get interesting. For a Jewish audience listening, the, the normal pattern of a story would be, you would set up these first two people as, as the, the, the scapegoats, the people who are going to fall, and, and you're going to be able to point to them and say, don't do that, do this. Now, the pattern would have been that there would have been another Israelite who would have entered the story, though. Not, not a Samaritan. It would be an Israelite, somebody who, who wasn't professional at following God. Somebody who's, whose job wasn't to love God in the temple. It would have just been the regular Joe. The, the, the guy uh, who comes by and, and shows the lawyers how it's really done. But a Samaritan. Whew. 
See, the Samaritan would not have been the unsung hero, but the enemy. The, the Samaritans were, were the people who, who God had, uh, had taken away by the Assyrians and, and had left a remnant. And those, those remnant were supposed to stay uh, you know, unmarried to the surrounding peoples, but they had intermarried. And not only had they intermarried and, and broken God's commands, but then they, they took God's law and they, they changed it. And not only did they change God's law, but they also made a, a new place for the people to worship because they wanted to be able to worship not down in, in, uh, in Jerusalem, but they wanted to be able to worship up where they were. So they had broken God's law. They had intermarried. They had rejected God's ways. They, they, there's no way that people who changed God's law, there's no way that people who had broken God's law could love God, let alone their neighbor. There's no way that this could be the hero of the story. Rabbis of the day would say this, let no man eat the bread of the Samaritans for he who eats their bread is as one who eats swine's flesh. For them, that was an abomination. You couldn't do that. A Jewish prayer said, don't remember the Samaritans in the resurrection. They were hated. There's a big, big difference between the religious people and then the Samaritan. That's verse 33, compassion. When he saw the man, he had compassion. Sympathetic pity, concern for the sufferings or the misfortunes of others. This Samaritan came to where he was. He saw the man on the side of the road and instead of just going on his way, he had compassion. He entered into his suffering by binding up his wounds, by pouring on oil and wine, by putting him on his, his ride and taking him to the inn and taking care of him. And then more than that, leaving money behind to be, have the man taken care of even longer. Man, can any of us love our neighbor like that? Especially when Jesus reframes what, what a neighbor is. That we no longer have enemies, people who don't deserve our, our grace, but that everybody who we see suffering deserves our compassion, our pity, our concern. Can we really love the way Jesus is calling us to love? Are we willing to be compassionate even when it costs us? Sure, it might be a, you know, a person on the side of, of the road, but it might also be somebody who's got themselves into this trouble. Who's made a bad financial decision. Who, who's made bad relational decisions. Who's been living in sin even. Do they deserve our compassion? Are we able to enter into their suffering? Jesus ends the passage asking the question, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Now, obviously, you know, there can only be one answer. Right? The lawyer, as much as he would have hated to say it, there can only be one good answer. The, the religious people who were literally neighbors to this man had failed. And the lawyer can't even say the name. Can't even, can't even say the Samaritan the one who showed him mercy. I'm sure he wanted to cry out that, that wicked, that unclean, that hated person. But he's the only one who's done what fulfills the law. So Jesus says to him, you go and do likewise. 
doesn't feel like the passage should end there, does it? Like, does that feel like the natural end of, of the passage? Like, like, we're supposed to just say, okay, so go and, go and do likewise. The, the whole passage is built on the question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus just tells the guy, well, if you want to be justified, if you want to be innocent, if you want to be right before God, go and fulfill the law like this. Love God perfectly and love everyone you come across who needs compassion with the same compassion you've received. Is this, is this more law? Like, is, is this more rules? This doesn't seem to line up with so much else. How overwhelming if that's the way the passage ends and that's the way we read it, right? It's hopeless. What Jesus is really doing is he's actually giving us, us hope. He, he's showing the impossibility of fulfilling the law, the demands that it has. And that's the point of the story. You and I want to justify ourselves, but the law reveals our hopelessness. When we stand under the weight of the law, it crushes us. We went to a, a water park uh, a few weeks ago. And uh, I think every water park has that, that one thing that when you see it, you go, they shouldn't have built that. And so at this park, it was the big pot that fills up with water. You know, hundreds and hundreds of liters of water. And this thing starts off and it's just swaying around nicely and, and it looks totally innocent. But then as it fills up, you realize more and more and more and more water. And the, the, the fun thing about this park actually is, uh, is as it filled up, all the other uh, water things kind of dimmed. And so when this thing was full, everything else turned off and you knew it was time for this thing just to come crashing down. Now, most of the kids at the park kind of figured this out pretty quickly, right? They'd all kind of scatter because this thing would just crash in the middle. There's this one kid. There's this one kid. He, he walked and he wasn't super close, you know, like six, seven feet off. Um, and, and I mean, it just shows you my heart sucks because I was like, get a little closer. Just, just inch a little further. I want to see what happens if this really gets you. But he stood six, seven feet off. And, and as the water crashed and it kind of hit him off the ground, he, he, like, he stumbled backwards. And I was like, man, that would have been amazing if he was right under it. I mean, he would have been in the hospital, but it would have been something to see. For us to say our whole lives, we've, we've stood under the whole weight of the law. Those, those, those thousands of pounds of water just hitting us. The 613 laws that tell us what we should and shouldn't do to stand under that and say, I've done it. It's impossible. We've all been guilty of something, whether it's lying or, or gossip or, or wanting something that wasn't ours or even taking something that wasn't ours. And, and sure, we'll justify it, right? Like I deserve it or that person didn't need it. Like we'll try to justify it. Right? Did, did you know what they said about me, though? Like, whew, I, I can talk behind their back. I can gossip, too. Like, they did it first. We've all been guilty. That's exactly the relationship um, with our neighbor, to, to love God perfectly the, the way God has loved us, the, the way that God has designed us to love. We, we can't do it. It's clear. The law, the standards were, were created to reveal the hopeless situation that we find ourselves in because of our sin. 
The law reveals that. Romans 3, 11 to 12 and uh, 23 says this, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God for all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The weight of the law is supposed to crush us to bring us to our knees before Jesus. And that the problem is the lawyer knew the law perfectly. But he didn't see that it pointed to his need for Jesus, a savior. And that's what John 5, 39 to 40 says. Jesus is saying, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. The NIV says, you, you diligently search. And it's they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have Life. Romans 3, 23 ends with verse 24, which is great. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all failed to fulfill the law and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That's, that's how the law is fulfilled. The third thing we see in our passage is that Jesus has compassion on us so that we can gain eternal life. Our, our only hope at life is through Jesus, through him fulfilling the law perfectly on our behalf. See, in the story, we often love to read ourselves into it and see, oh, I can be the good Samaritan. The, the point of the story is that you and, you and I are are the lawyer in the story trying to find a way to justify ourselves, trying to find a way to make ourselves innocent before God. You and I are the person who's lying on the side of the road, bloodied and half dead because of our sin and our unrighteousness. We're, we're waiting for death to come unless somebody has compassion and heals us. We're the religious people who don't stop and love our neighbor. We fail to fulfill the law, even though we can even say we love God. That's why this story cries out this need to come to Jesus, to cry to God for compassion, for mercy, for, for grace, for forgiveness. The answer to the lawyer's original question, having done what will I gain eternal life, is this. Confess your sin, repent and trust in Jesus who is compassionate and filled with mercy for us. Accept the free gift of grace that Jesus has for you who humbled himself coming from heaven and, and humbling himself to, to come to earth to die a criminal's death on a cross to defeat uh, sin and Satan and death as he was resurrected. That's the message we all need to hear. That's the message the lawyer, that's the message our self-justification needs to hear. This is how Paul described what the lawyer couldn't grasp in Titus 3, 3 to 8. This is what it says. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, who he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. 
That's what the lawyer doesn't grasp. We can't save ourselves. We can't justify ourselves. We can't prove our own innocence because we're not. Now, what do we do with this command from Jesus, though? Because there still feels like there's some kind of command here. Go and do likewise. In fact, twice. Do this and you will live. Go and do likewise. Are we, are we supposed to try to fulfill this? Are we freed from living compassionate lives like the Samaritan because Jesus fulfills the law for us? Well, this is how Luke, or Paul finishes his thought in Titus 3. This saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to the good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. This is how we're supposed to understand the parable of the Good Samaritan. We want to justify ourselves, but we can't. The weight of the law is too much for us. But Jesus has come. He's been compassionate on us so that we could have eternal life. And ultimately, fleshed out, Jesus has compassion on us so we can have compassion on others. We're not freed from good works. We're, we're given a, a new heart for good works. And the, the way that we actually see what Jesus has done for us, his sacrifice for us, his, his grace on us, the way he's forgiven us, even though we haven't deserved it, we've done nothing to earn it. It's not until we, we come to see the gift that we've received that our hearts can be changed and we can serve the way that we've been served. This is why loving God and loving others still matters. It's not that we're free to ignore the parable. It's that we're free to do it because God has changed our hearts. We, we, we love because we've been loved. We can extend forgiveness because we've experienced what forgiveness looks like. We can live gracious lives towards others because of the grace that we've received. We don't treat people the way they deserve. We have mercy on them because we see how Christ has been merciful on us. Isn't this a call to good works, though? No. We don't save ourselves by fulfilling the law, but yes, we're called to respond to what God has done for us. We obey the law in response to the compassionate sacrifice of Jesus. The salvation we've experienced we're called to live a life now in response to. The, the, the love we've experienced now translates into love for others, which means there's nobody we can call an enemy that doesn't deserve love. There's no one outside uh, the, the boundaries of grace because we understand that at one time we were, but God extended us grace. It means we can't hate someone because of their race or the country they live in, the social standing or the, the political party they support. We don't get an excuse to hate anybody. This means we can't have cold hearts because we think they deserve it. Like the man who traveled on his own and got mugged and beat up, it would be easy to say he deserved it. But our heart can't do that anymore. It's not the heart that the gospel gives us. There's two questions I want to ask as we wrap up. I mean, the first really is that, that first question all over again. What will you trust in for eternal life? Where's your source of life? What are you holding on to to gain eternal life and make you innocent before God? 
My hope is that today you have seen that there is no way that you can justify yourself, no way that you can be innocent before God without help. My hope is that you would turn to God today if you haven't yet, that you would repent, that you would, you would ask God to forgive you and accept that gracious gift that he gives. The second question is, if you have experienced the compassion from Jesus, the grace, the mercy, the forgiveness that he extends to us, where are there opportunities to show compassion? Who in their suffering and hardship needs you to extend compassion, to enter into it? We have friends, we have neighbors, we have coworkers, we have family that are suffering every day in, in, in temporary things, but also in the eternal aspects of their sin and the death that is clinging to them, lying half dead on the road. Will you apply the gospel to that? Will you show them how Jesus pays that price for their innocence? I shared the story of Chase at the beginning of how his life was, was cut short. Uh, the beautiful thing about Chase's life is uh, a few years before his death, uh, there was a, a major transformation in his life. Uh, at one point, he was living a very religious life. He was doing things because he thought he needed to, and yet, at some point, God's grace shook him. And he woke up and, and he accepted the, the, the gracious gift of eternal life by confessing his sins and repenting. The cool thing was, it wasn't just that he did that action, but there was a heart change that happened. Chase became one of the, the, the most loving and caring guys. His, his heart was changed. And you could see that he understood the, the gift that he had received. You could understand he, he experienced the compassion of God and he was willing to extend it to others. My hope was that each of us would do the same. Let me pray to that end. Father, uh, thank you for this passage and, and I, I do thank you that even though uh, if we don't read it well, it is overwhelming and, and it shows this weight that we can't bear. I thank you that the gospel informs us. It shows us what Jesus has done on our behalf. That God, we don't have to earn your forgiveness, that we don't have to try and be innocent before you to gain eternal life, but that God, uh, Jesus has done the work for us and now we, we can live new lives, transformed and changed. God, as we experience the, the beautiful gift of grace, it changes us, it transforms our heart to go in love and I pray that would be true of us. God, I, I pray for those who are here and listening that you would convict us of our sins the way that God, we've not allowed the gospel to change our hearts. Would we repent even today? For those who are, who are hearing the very first time their need for you, God, to forgive them and to make them right before you, God, would, would they repent and turn to you today? For the rest of us, God, who have experienced your compassion, would you help us to look at people differently, the way that you look at us? Would we treat them with, with the grace and the mercy that we've received? We pray this all in your name, Jesus. Amen.